verses 29 all the way to 21 verses 13. Um, and if we have the next slide then Stuart, uh, we'll do a quick review. Um, a lot of information in there, but I'll read it quite quickly. Uh, just to kind of, it is really not pertinent to what we're learning today, but just a reminder of what we were dealing with in the last, uh, I would say two to three weeks. Uh, we, these, these themes were coming in really intensely in the chapters previous to this. Um, and basically what we got out of the last several, you know, bits of scripture that we've gone through and studied is that as disciples, we, we need to learn to think a different way. And with that, it's like stopping thinking in the way the world does, you know, and, and the influence, the effect that that culture has on, 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 on everything. And it, has an, and it can have an effect on us as well. But disciples, we saw that they had uh, certain uh, thoughts, certain things that, uh, that the way the world thought, the way how the world believed certain things, and it affected them adversely. I called it pop culture ideas. It is, it's, it's the way our culture thinks today. Like today I was joking about Google and YouTube and everything else, but that's our culture today. You talk about Google and YouTube to Jesus, you, you, you'll probably know what you're talking about, but he pretend like you didn't know. <laughs> but you talk about the disciples, so what about this YouTube, what about this Google in the 21st century? They'd be like, what, what are you talking about? But, but, but so our, our culture, it changes, it develops, and there's things that people talk and do and believe and whatnot. And I put three principles up that, that the disciples were adversely or poorly um, influenced by, by pop culture. And, that's, and there's the three things that Jesus count, counteracted. First one was richness is equivalent to blessedness of God. That was very common back then, very common. And even now, I think the idea of if you're rich, you must be blessed of God. And that's kind of a reversal of a kind of true principle. The kind of true principle is this. God loves you. He blesses you. And that makes sense. God does bless the people he loves. And that, we have no problem with that. But, but when you reverse that and say, because you're rich, you must be blessed of God, we have a fallacy there. Because we can imagine several instances of corrupt rich people who aren't close to God at all. But this is the story of the rich young ruler. Remember he came and Jesus says, listen, your problem is your riches. Sell it. Then come follow me. And the guy said, mm, and he walked away. Okay, and the, the third principle was children are an inconvenience. Very common in culture that day. It's like children and women aren't to, aren't to be heard or seen. Just, you know, there was very, uh, very man macho culture back then, you know. Um, and so when the people were bringing children to Jesus, the disciples were like, oh, we don't want to put Jesus off the children, you know. And, but Jesus says, no, 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 no. The, the, the kingdom of the universe is, is set up for these children. And I think when we were reading it, we were seeing how, how, the, how what Jesus is going to do and the gospel and everything it was going to be invested into these young people and into their young people and, and so on and so forth. So this generation that we're looking at, Jesus is praying for and he's putting his hands upon and he's ministering to, these people are going to change the world as we know it. So yes, these, are, these, these kids aren't just an inconvenience. They're the way of our future. And that's how I think how our culture in the Western world really thinks. We see children more as our future. 
and something to invest in. Which is funny because if you look at the ancient Hebrew culture, they're very much so like that as well. But in the Roman culture, the Greek Roman culture, things kind of went a bit weird. And that affect um, the way the disciples thought. And the third principle is being first is great. You know, ah, quick. It's like the typical, like my child, you know, run, run, run. I got to get to the car first and get the front seat. Run, run, run. I got to get to the toys first and play with it so I can get the best choice, the toys. You know, the idea of being first is great. These are the principles that, that the disciples struggle with that Jesus we've already dealt with. So I'm going to try to move quickly, and I'm sorry I'm so slow. Spiritual renewal must then take place in the way a disciple thinks in order to see things correctly. Jesus corrects disciples by, first of all, explaining um, how hard, I shouldn't say who, how hard it actually is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 19, 23. Then he insisting that the people continue to bring their children and declaring that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such. 1914. And then finally we ended with the illustration of the parable of the uh, the vineyard, the vine owner, um, and how that illustrates the fact that um, well, basically what these last four points are right here. And that is, don't be envious of other disciples. Remember that we all serve the same master who treats us fairly. Jesus himself did not come to be served, but to serve, Matthew twenty twenty eight. Great disciples resemble their Lord closely. They, too, do not look to be served, to consume for oneself, <laughs> but to serve others. How can I serve? That's the question that's asked by disciples. That's the question asked by Jesus. And even as we start this scripture, we see Jesus right off the bat doing what he always does at the beginning of each one of our Bible studies, and that's serving people. He doesn't stop. And I put here, this is my opinion, you can disagree if you want to, but I think this is the substance of revival. Not looking at oneself, but looking at the big picture, looking at others, giving, serving, that is the substance of revival. Next one, please. So, and then now I got a contextual recap. We, we did talk about the scripture, but the reason why I'm bringing it back is because this is the mission. This is the mission. This is what Jesus has on mind. This is what the disciples should have on mind. This is the mission. Jesus said, or Jesus was going to Jerusalem. So here we are. This is what I call this, especially the road to Calvary. The road to Calvary can mean a lot of different things. I'm kind of taking it literally, saying here's the road to Calvary. Okay, and the disciples have a chance to go with Jesus to Calvary and learn a lot of spiritual lessons as well as be with him to the road to Calvary. But here we have Jesus going to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we are going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Simply put, this is the mission. This is, this is what's going to be done. This is what's got to be done. We're going to do, and I like the words. Look at the language he uses here. Jesus was so confident. It wasn't like, oh, I hope well, this is going to happen. No, he didn't talk that way. He goes, this is what's going to happen. Notice the direct language he uses here. We are going The Son of Man will be delivered. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over. He will be raised to life. Some heavy duty claims here. And he's saying these things using direct language. So I wonder what was going on in the disciples' minds as they hear these things. What do you mean you will and we will? 
Well, it's kind of, it's not, it's not hope for these negative things, Jesus. Come on, what a downer. No, Jesus knows the mission. This is what will happen. Get over it, guys. You know, and, and, and we know the guys struggle a lot with these things. We see the reaction to the cross and the reaction to, to Calvary. And, and, and it was quite devastating. Thank God for the resurrection. Because <laughs> finally, they, you know, and of course, Pentecost, which came eventually and gave them, you know, understanding. Ah, we get it now. But at this point, this is quite bad news. Not, not the kind of mission that most people would sign up for. <laughs> Here's your mission, guys. Isn't this exciting? We're going to go and die. Come on, let's go. Whoa, 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 whoa. Time out. I don't want to do this mission. So let's go. Here we are. We're going to Calvary. Look, just think. Just stop and think how brave our Lord is. He went. I mean, just think about that. Like, for me, if I were to go to the dentist, I, I put my jacket on and my shoes on is a hard thing because I don't like the dentist because he puts things in my mouth and makes pain. But imagine putting your shoes and your jacket on thinking, here I go, I'm going to go die. That must have been a hard thing. How brave is Jesus? But on his way, here we go, leaving Jericho, Matthew 20, 29, he has a quick encounter. I call it a quick encounter. You know, but look at what's going on. Still, Jesus is encountering this large crowd. And we've discovered going through Matthew that there's a distinction in his disciples in the crowd. The disciples generally are the ones who are with Jesus through thick and thin. While you have the crowd that's kind of there sometimes and kind of there not sometimes. And they like to be fed the fishes and the breads and they like the healings. They like the, the miracles. They like all the fun stuff. But they tend to disappear when things get hard. <laughs> but yet here they are, the mixed group, disciples and a large crowd, and they're following him. Then we see two blind men. This is a pretty powerful little story here. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside. Now again, like I said, this is a reoccurring theme, okay? It's the crowds, the disciples, and healings. So when I, when I saw this, I kind of thought, why did Matthew put this in here? We know Jesus healed a ton of people. I mean, he did. He didn't stop healing. He didn't stop doing wonderful things. He didn't stop ministering to people. He didn't stop. So why did he put this particular story? Is it because it's a miracle? Well, everything Jesus did was miraculous. Well, why this story? And I think the reason why is I like the attitude. And I think the attitude of these blind men is pertinent to the story. So let's, let's go on and read this. Think about the ad to these guys. Jesus just did what Jesus does. He heals. He loves, he ministers. But look at the attitude of these blind folk as they called out to Jesus. So the two blind men were sitting on the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted. They shouted. I like that. That's the first thing. That's why I like They shouted. They weren't like, hey, Jesus, I mean, I, I kind of want to check him out. I kind of want to like size this guy up. You know, what's he all about? No, they knew that they needed Jesus. They knew that they needed Jesus. Jesus was their only hope. So they shouted, and they shouted, and when they shouted, and they, they declared his kingship, his messiahship, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Now look at the crowd's reaction. Like I said, my, you know my feelings about the crowd, okay? So I'm not going to talk about them much more anymore. But, but here's a mixed group, and this is kind of a popular response. Don't, don't embarrass yourself, mate. Come on. Come on. Keep, keep, keep a low key. Come on, guys. They rebuked him. The word rebuke, literally, if, if you take this, 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 this word in the Greek and take it word for word, it literally means sternly told them to be quiet. Come on, guys. You're making a fool out of yourself. None of your Jesus stuff, you know? Come on. Keep it down. Keep it cool. You know? But think about this. This is their opportunity. This is their opportunity. 
And sometimes God gives us that opportunity. And sometimes we have that feeling, should I be shy and cool and laid back and not shout too loud? Or should I go for Jesus and say, yeah, you know what? Come, Jesus, heal me, take me, make me, mold me. That's what I see these guys doing. Okay, so they're shouting for Jesus. The, 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 cool, the crowd says, come on, you're making a fool of yourself. Just, just lay low, be cool, right? Come on. It, but, but look what their response was. They're like, no way, Jose. They shouted all the louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. It's a simple message, isn't it? But it's all right there. So what did Jesus do? Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want for me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they want to see. Simple. They're blind. They want to see. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, immediately they received their sight and followed him. Look how awesome. Look how easy it is for Jesus. All they had, but they shouted on him. I mean, Jesus is walking. He, he was, he's on his way to Jerusalem. But he heard him shouting. The crowd wanted to keep him down. But they wouldn't be... They wouldn't allow that to happen to them. Next slide, please. So it's a simple little sweet message in that little bit of scripture there. But we're going to keep moving on. We're moving. We're moving. We're going into Jerusalem. Here we are. We're with the Lord Jesus. We're like one of his disciples with him right there. We're moving. We see that experience and we take it in. But we keep moving. So Matthew 21, verses 1 says this. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Okay, so they're still some, some way away. And they come to a small village on the outskirts of Jerusalem, going on into Jerusalem. So they're very close now. And so there's a little village. Just go into that little village there. Okay, Bethpage. And you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. Again, I love how Jesus speaks. Imagine being with Jesus. And he says, hey, by the way, guys, this village, we're going to go there. You're going to see a donkey. But guess what? Not just a donkey. He's going to be tied up. But guess what? He's going to have a little colt, a little baby with her. Okay? And they're, I'm going to Jesus, how do you know these things? How do you know these things? I mean, just look how confident he is and how he speaks. And tie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, okay, and here's another thing. I love what Jesus says. If somebody says, um, excuse me, it can't take my donkey, you say to them, the Lord needs him. Is that awesome how Jesus <clears throat> And he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, and the fowl of a donkey. So, again, Jesus was also very familiar with scriptures. And he, he knew that this was God's plan. And he says, well, look, here's where the Bible you know, prophesies this very day. So let's go. Here we go. And what I like is a couple of things about the scripture. And like it says, we're, going, we're moving quite quickly. But there are some beautiful insights in here. And the first obvious insight that strikes me when you look at the scriptures like this is how Jesus comes as a king. In this, 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 this event we see here, we call it Palm Sunday usually. It's, a, it's tri, uh, this triumphal entrance into Jerusalem. And it is, it's a big celebration. But this is the kind of celebration you would expect kind of a king. Now, I always want to say kind is kings don't usually ride in on donkeys. But the response, the singing, the shouting, the, the throwing the palm branch leaves down, we're going to see in a moment, this is a, the entrance of a king. This is a military <laughs> offense against Rome. 
You know what I'm saying? Rome has a king. Rome has authority. They don't need a Jewish king, certainly not a Jewish king to come in and this king of Israel to come in and to, what is this all about? But look how he comes. Gentle, gentle, meek, almost kind of silly, riding on a donkey. What kind of, what kind of message are you showing here, Jesus? Come on, you got to go on a big fancy horse, big strong steed, you know? Send the right message that you are the Messiah and you, you're here to take care of business. But that's not his intention on this first entry into Jerusalem. This first entry into Jerusalem, he's a king, but a gentle king. Almost like, your king's here. Come on, here's your opportunity to to shape up. (laughs) Because the second coming of Christ into Jerusalem is going to be more like what we see here in Revelation 17, 14. This is prophetic, okay? This is yet to come. Yet they will rage war against the Lamb. Who's the Lamb? You know who the Lamb is. That's Jesus. But the Lamb will triumph over them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And with him, he will be, oh, and with him, I like this part, I like this. And with him will be his called, chosen, and faithful followers. I like these two scriptures side by side because of two reasons. First of all, we see him triumphing. The first time he comes in gently. The second return into Jerusalem or into the world, into the scene, the second coming as it says more generically, we see him coming to wage war. So first time, peace. Second time, with war. But look at the power. Look at the the result. The first coming, the result was his death on the cross. The second coming is the lamb triumphing over these, you know, these so-called lords and these so-called kings. Because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings. But what I also like about these two scriptures in parallel is his disciples are with him. His disciples, that's us, that's you, that's me, with Jesus. The first time his disciples entered into Jerusalem with him. And here, when he returns, we're there with him. We're there with him. Isn't that awesome to know that we are there with Christ? He, He likes us to be with him. He wants us to be with him. He likes to spend time with his disciples. And that's awesome. That makes me think, do I really like spending time with him? Sometimes I spend a lot of time, my time during the week, spending time by myself or in front of the telly or playing games or running around doing this, this, and that. But I think it's cool how Jesus, when he does his big important tasks, he brings his disciples with him. I, I kind of like that he, he wants us to be with, there with him. That's really cool. Uh, I mean, Jesus could have made it a very private mission because he didn't need his disciples to die on the cross, right? All Jesus needs to die on the cross is Jesus. But he invited his disciples to come along with them. Come with me to Jerusalem. And then, of course, the communion, the, the taking of the breaking of the bread. His disciples were with them. And he's explained to them. And then, of course, we see this revelation scripture. You know, again, the disciples are with them. That's not great. Jesus could have done it. Mission a e solo. But no, he brings his disciples with him. He wants to spend time with us doing these very important things. It's not just spending time with them in a, oh, isn't that nice? But spending time with them to do important things. So who is this? Who is this man coming in on a donkey? Who is this who comes into Jerusalem as a king? Matthew 21, 8 says this. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches in the trees and spread them on the road. Again, you know, making a procession for the king coming into, into Jerusalem. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted. So we've got... The streets decorated. <laughs> and then we have shouts, people singing before Christ. 
you know, kind of like a parade coming in. You got people coming in first. Then you have Christ on this donkey. <laughs> and then you got people behind him. And they're all shouting this, these scriptures, this psalm, this song here. Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. The word Hosanna is a Hebrew expression meaning save. It's ironic they're singing to Jesus, save us. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. Which also became an explanation of praise. So they're praising Lord Jesus, save. God, save. The son of David, save. But they're praising God. So it's almost like, save us, please. Yes, we know you will. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, yes, he's here to save us. He's here to rescue us. We know he will. That's why it's not just a a petition, a plea. Oh, oh, please save us. It's more than that. It's thanksgiving. It's like, we know you will save. Because God said you would. And we believe what God says. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And it's cool because we sing these songs at church sometimes. We sing it this morning, I think. Did you do that on purpose, Graham? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? We sing these songs and sometimes we go, that's a cool word, Hosanna. But what does it mean? Well, now you know what it means. Save us. Now, the, the most important Element, the most important salvation is the salvation of the soul, the spirit, to know God, to be one with God, to be born again. But there's all the elements of salvation. Save us from trials. Save us from depression. Save us from ourselves. Save us from sin. Save us from the, the effect and the influence of the world. We can cry out salvation to Jesus all day long. Because we're, we're, we're fighting a battle in this world, guys. Save us, Lord. Obviously, save our souls. That's, that's, that's the... <laughs> that's it. That's the, that's the basic common denominator. But we call to the Lord to save us in all kinds of different ways. So when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was steered and asked, who is this? Who is this? Now bear in mind, Jesus never came to Jerusalem. This is his first time. First, well, I almost said last time. That's not true. But this is his first time to Jerusalem here um, in his earthly ministry. Um, <clears throat> and so the crowds, who, who is this guy? But the news the news spread about Jesus. And so they, the crowd answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. So they knew about this fella who was from Nazareth, who was doing all these amazing things in Galilee. They're familiar with him. But now they're seeing them for themselves. So this is truly an exciting time. Next slide. <clears throat> exciting as can be. And look at this. As he continues into Jerusalem, confident, I am the king. Confident, here is your king. Confident, look at this. He goes into the temple now. This is my temple. And look what he does. Matthew 21, 12. I'm sorry, my throat's starting to get a bit weird. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers. Okay, the money changers. Those were... The money changes. At the temple, they would force people basically to convert their, their currency. So you come in with your with your with your regional monies, right? And they would force you. Oh, but that's not temple currency, huh? Well, you're in the temple, so you have to use temple money. So they'd force you to convert it. Like you know, if you were going to go travel to Europe or to America, you have to convert your money. You can't take your pounds with you. But they would do it for this ridiculous extortionate fee. So they basically rip you off. That's what they're doing. 
It's not because they're providing a nice service for the temple <laughs> and a nice service for the worshipers. Because at this time, by the way, it was the Passover time, okay? So a lot of people came to do this, the Passover, you know, you know, celebration and festivities. But they rip ripping people off. And Jesus walked in. The king walks in. He walks in the temple. And he looks and he goes, no, I'm not having this. Jesus did not approve of the commercialization of the temple services of the day. You know, the, the market, the capitalism, the, you know, the whatever you would call it, the making, the making, it's not the fact that they provided a good service. It's the fact that they were people off. You know what I'm saying? If you're a business person, if you're a, somebody who provides an awesome service to your community or a, a product, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a problem when you rip people off. And that's what Jesus is upset about. Why are you ripping people off? They've come to worship the gods of heavens and the earth. And another thing he did, they did that he didn't like. He's, he's just turning over these benches, these, these doves on it, selling doves. It was common practice, again, that the temple priests would only sacrifice. Now, the scriptures were very specific about the quality of sacrifice, okay? There was supposed to be a, a, a quality standard met that was scriptural, and we understand that. But they would take it a step further and say we would only really Sacrifice temple supplied and temple approved. Again, why? If I were to bring a perfectly legitimate spotless lamb or dove or whatever, that should suffice, according to scriptures. But they wanted to rip people off. So they said, no, that's not temple supplied. Animal, critter, dove, whatever. Of course, the cost for these would be greatly overinflated. So you see why Jesus is mad? And what I love about Jesus, he's, here he is, the man of authority. He knew, look what he says here. He says, it is written, he said to them, my house. Now here, he's using scriptures, and he's making it apply to himself. First person, perspective. My house. Jesus, the authority. That's his temple. My house will be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. Next slide, please. But here's the funny thing. As it's excited, imagine again, okay, the reason why I'm moving quite quickly as well is I want to pretend like we're with Jesus as we're watching all these exciting things happen, right? We're going into Jerusalem. The crazy thing about the donkey, the riding on the donkey, people singing and celebrating, and then there's the, you know, the, the, the palm branches, and we're going into Jerusalem. Jesus goes, marches up to the temple. He starts, I mean, it looks like, oh, there's some, some serious changes here. Jesus is here to clean up. He's going to bust some heads, man. This is fantastic. Finally, Jerusalem's going to be straightened up. They're going to get rid of the Romans, get rid of the Greeks, get rid of the pagans, get rid of the barbarians, get rid of everyone, <laughs> except for the righteous ones. Great, fantastic. Imagine me the disciples would be so excited about this. However, it's important that we remember the mission. And the mission is this. On the way, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem, not to kick the Romans out, not to prove our authority, not to do anything but to, he goes on to say, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. This looks more like defeat than victory in the, in, you know, in the kind of human perspective. I like the idea of Jesus walking into Jerusalem and throwing tables over and, and you know, and, and take, I, I can see the, 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 the chief priests shaking in their boots in the corner. Uh-oh, here's the Messiah. What are we going to do? He's caught us out. We're ripping the people off. He's caught us out. I, I like that thought, but I don't like the thought of the chief priests winning 
and taking Jesus and him being delivered over to them. I don't like that idea. And the teachers of the law, they will condemn him to death, hand over the Gentiles. No, the Gentiles are supposed to go bye-bye. <laughs> the Gentiles are supposed to go away. No, 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 what's going on here? But this is the mission. He's going to be abducted, arrested by the chief priests, handed over to the nasty old dirty Gentiles, to be mocked, flogged, crucified. But here's the good news. But on the third day, he'll be raised to life. So here's our application. Here's our conclusion for this morning. In life, we go through lots of things. It sounds oversimplistic. It is. We do. Life is crazy. We go through a lot. We learn a lot. We have so many experiences, so many trials, so many tribulations, so many good things. So many things happen to us in life. Some days, sometimes, some years are bright and exciting. The best days of my life, we might describe them. When it's easier or easy to be a Christian and give thanks to God for all of his wonderful blessings. Then there are dark days, which can be scary, frustrating, and painful. I think of like Job, and I think of Christ here, and I think of Paul, and all that he suffered. But, you know, this is the road to Calvary. This is Jesus' road. This is the disciples' road. The road to Calvary is a mixed bag of trials and blessings. But I think the cool thing about being Christian is we have this thing called hope. This is what Blaise Pascal loved about the gospel. Hope. So we have these crazy trials, these, these scary things like cancer, trials, persecutions, all these financial woes, all these things that scare us. And we've been mixed with the blessings that God has obviously showed us. But when you have that mixing, we have this thing called hope. It's almost like, it's like mathematical. It's like all the wonderful things God has done, all the wonderful things that God is doing, all the wonderful things that God will do. All these trials, all these difficult times, doesn't really matter. Because we have hope. And hope, okay, I'm going to tell you how good hope is. Imagine that there's no God. There goes your hope. I mean, think about it. If God's real, if God's real and God cares for us, we have a destination, heaven. We have protection, our heavenly Father, our God. We've got a purpose, a mission. We've got significance, all these things that we take for granted, now, if we say there's no God, there is no significance. There's no value. There's no mission. There's no purpose. There's no eternal home. That's what, I'm, that's what we talk about when we talk about hope. These disciples, what they're going through, Jesus, he didn't see the cross as the end. You see, he goes on to say, but then the third day be raised to life. There's more to life than living to die. That is a sad thing. That's a sad state that many people in our society live. There is no God. And there's people who actually are adamantly aggressive that you believe that there's no God as well because they don't want to die <laughs> miserable and alone. They want us to agree with them. So we would be miserable as they are. But there's so much hope. I don't, you know, I do care about scary things. I do care about frustrating things. I do care about painful things. I do care about it. But I can get through it because I've got hope. Because I can take all the blessings I've seen God give to me, and all the blessings I've seen that God's done for you guys and for other people, and I can see all, take all his blessings, and I can shower that over all the hard times, all the troubles, and all the temptations, and all the frustrating times. And so the cross is a scary thing. It's a frightful thing. But the disciples need to remember all that they've seen in Christ's life and realize that there's major stock in the fact that on the third day, he will be raised to life.
light of the sun.